You're listening to the newest episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life, with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 74th episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. Today I'll be talking about the difference between discipline and punishment, and how to really make a difference in the lives of students using choice theory psychology. Somehow, over the years, discipline and consequences have come to be synonymous. However, when I look it up in Webster's Dictionary, I see three definitions, none of which speak to punishment. The first one says that which follows the result of some preceding act, cause, etc. The second definition is simply significance. The third definition says distinction, importance in rank, etc. I would like us to agree to the first definition of the word so that when I mention consequences in this podcast, I mean something that happens because of a preceding event, not necessarily punishment. People have come to use consequence as a euphemism for punishment, but I'd like to be clear about the way I'm going to use it in this podcast. Discipline has also become one of those euphemisms for punishment because somewhere along the line, adults learned that punishment doesn't really help children. So instead of learning new and better skills to guide them to more responsible pathways, they simply dressed up the term to make it sound new and different. Let's begin with an understanding of the Latin roots of the words discipline and punishment. There's a distinct difference. The Latin root of punishment means to inflict pain, while the Latin root of discipline means to teach. There are some teachers who believe the only way to teach children is through pain, but most teachers do want to teach their students better behavior. They just don't know exactly how to do it effectively. When a child misbehaves in school, teachers often send the child to the dean of students for an apt punishment. Many complain if they deem the punishment not severe enough for the offense. However, teachers should know pain is not really a good teacher, especially biology teachers. Bruce Lipton, a famous cellular biologist, teaches that cells are either in one of two positions. They can't be in both at the same time. They're either open for growth or they're closed for protection. When they're closed for protection, they can't grow or learn. Humans are simply a collection of cells. When people are afraid because their punishment is painful, they're not learning the lessons you hope they are. What they're learning is how mean, insensitive, and powerful you are, and how to avoid you in the future by getting better at hiding their misbehavior. When you apply choice theory to teaching, it moves away from the punishing dynamic and into a learning mode. When teachers learn its application, they stop sending students to the dean and start dealing with behaviors in the classroom. They develop a culture of understanding, compassion, learning, and growth, not just for the offender, but also for everyone else in the room. It begins by establishing a culture of relationship and connection. Students are taught the difference between the connecting and disconnecting relationship habits. The expectation is that everyone in the room, including you, will practice the connecting ones and do their best to avoid using the disconnecting ones. This means that students and you are working to listen, support, encourage, trust, respect, accept, and negotiate differences. The disconnecting habits to avoid include complaining, blaming, criticizing, nagging, 
threatening, punishing, and bribing or rewarding to control. People in the classroom are actively engaged in being nice to one another, including you. When there's a conflict, as inevitably there will be, students are encouraged to work it out using negotiating and care for one another. If they need help, the teacher will assist. There are generally three main expectations for behavior in the classroom, safety, respect, and learning. At the beginning of the school year, teachers talk with their students about these three main expectations and the students are invited to make their contributions to the conversation. Safety is something the teacher speaks of as a non-negotiable. They get everyone's agreement that it's important to be safe in the classroom. They then discuss the types of behaviors that would threaten safety for themselves and others. They don't have to come up with an exhaustive list. The teacher simply wants a discussion that everyone is involved with to ascertain that people know what safety is and the behaviors that threaten it. There's no need for 42 rules about safety. When someone is acting in an unsafe manner, all anyone would have to do is ask, is that a safe thing to do? Or they could simply state, that isn't a very safe thing to do. When you list 42 safety rules in a rule book, some enterprising student will find the 43rd thing you neglected to put in there and innocently ask when confronted, oh, I didn't know this was unsafe. It wasn't in the rule book. You want to teach students to think for themselves about following the guidelines and not have to micromanage their behavior. The next guideline to discuss is respect. Ask if there's anyone in the room who doesn't want to be respected. No one will say that. Everybody wants to be respected. Next, it's important to show that respect looks different to different people as a prelude to the conversation. What is it that speaks respect to each student as well as you? You want to have a general discussion about respect as it will help the students open to differences and they will genuinely want to make an effort to show respect to their fellow classmates and to you. One student might talk about you taking things from their desk without permission, while another might not like when people make fun of their younger sibling with disabilities, and yet another may not like being touched without permission. Again, you don't need 100 rules about respect. Just a general understanding of what communicates respect for different individuals and what types of things may communicate disrespect. The final guideline is about the purpose of the classroom, which is learning. Let students know that you understand that just because the school exists to help students learn, you know there may be times when learning isn't their top priority. You actually give them permission to zone out, which, by the way, they don't need your permission to do. Then you ask that they agree to one thing. Because learning is the purpose of your job and school, you ask that anyone who isn't engaged in the learning at any point in time respects you and the students who are learning enough not to be a distraction for them. So they can check out, but you ask them to please do it quietly so as not to disturb you or the other students. Most students will agree to those rules because they're reasonable and don't micromanage their behavior. There are also three things all people value, safety, respect, and learning. That doesn't mean there won't be isolated instances of irresponsible behavior that you'll need to address. 
Because most people tend to believe the world functions on an external control psychology, they'll address the behavior as the problem and seek punishment for the offender. This way, the adult can feel satisfied that they dealt with the behavior and the person received a severe enough discipline for them to learn their lesson. The problem with this approach is that the behavior isn't really the problem. The behavior is the communication the child is using to let you know they don't have a better way to get their needs met at that time. There is a want underlying the behavior that the teacher could try to understand. When you see the behavior as a student's best attempt to get what they want in that moment, then it no longer feels personal. When it isn't personal, you don't feel the need to inflict pain anymore. You can develop compassion for the student and a curiosity for what they want and ultimately need. Sometimes in the moment, there won't be time to learn what they want, but you can make an educated guess. There are only five basic needs, so even taking a random guess, you will be right 20% of the time. But guessing about needs isn't random. The behavior will provide you lots of clues. For example, if the student is talking with a classmate during class, they might need some connection. If the person is sleeping in class, it could be they're looking for some survival because they didn't sleep the night before, or it might mean they're just bored and in need of some joy. A student starting a fight with another student might be looking to gain some significance, while a student daydreaming in class may be seeking more freedom. The challenge is in the moment. You don't want to take the behavior personally, even if it feels extremely personal. The behavior is not about you. It's something the student is using to get what they want. It's the teacher's role to do their best to figure out what the need is underlying the want and to help their students develop responsible and respectful ways to get that. The classroom should be a place where everyone, including you, are able to get their needs met. When the classroom becomes need frustrating rather than need satisfying, acting out behavior will predictably be the result. The best tool for classroom management is a need satisfying environment. You want your students to feel safe and secure, connected with you and the rest of the students, competent and engaged in the learning, able to have freedom in the classroom within the boundaries you all co-develop together, and be able to experience joy in the classroom. When these conditions are met, you'll not have standing behavioral problems, albeit you will still have some isolated behavior incidents because you can't control what your students bring with them into the classroom. When we punish, we dole out consequences like detention, suspension, a call or note home, community service, or some other behavior the student isn't supposed to enjoy. We do this in the name of teaching. However, what does that really teach? I'm a fan of restorative justice when the person has a say in the restitution they're delivering. The restitution should come from the student's desire to make things right, not from the teacher's goal to teach the child a lesson. Do you remember all the disingenuous apologies you were made to deliver when a grown-up insisted you apologize? If you weren't sincerely sorry, delivering that apology did nothing for you or the other person. The best tool I know for anyone to learn from is a process called self-evaluation and choice theory provides that guidance in the form of a conversation. If you, the teacher, are going to facilitate a child's self-evaluation, then you want to start with the relationship. 
You want that child to know you're not mad at them, you aren't judging them, you care about them, and you want to help them figure out a better way. Believe me, students are quite adept at knowing your moods. It's difficult to hide your anger and frustration, so be sure you have your mind right before attempting this process. You next ask the person to identify what they wanted that they were trying to gain with the behavior they chose. Did it help them move closer to what they wanted or further away? Hopefully their answer is further away and then you can help them figure out a better way to get what they want. If their answer is that they did get what they wanted, then you can ask some additional responsibility questions. One, was it against the rules? Two, was it against the law? Three, did it hurt anyone, including yourself? If the behavior was problematic, then one of those questions will be answered affirmatively. Then follow up from that by asking them if they'd be interested in working with you to figure out an alternative that wouldn't result in negative consequences for them. The idea is to create an opportunity to help them figure out a way to get what they want without breaking any rules or laws or hurting anyone. Sometimes they may not be able to have what they want, but you can always help them figure out a way to get what they need, what's actually underneath that want. Part of working this process with students is helping them look at their behavior, which is the only thing they're able to control. When people are caught having done something they think they'll be punished for, the natural response is to make excuses for why they did it. It wasn't their fault. Mental freedom teaches that if you did something, you're responsible for it and its consequences. Remember by that, I don't mean any punishment that's doled out. I simply mean if you did something, you're responsible for what happens as a result of your actions. By focusing on the student's behavior, you can circumvent their tendency to find excuses or someone to blame. If you did it, you're responsible. No one can make you do something you don't want to do. You made a choice. You can explore why the student made the choice, but in doing so, they were hoping to get something they wanted. That is how internal control psychology works. When you use an internal control psychology, you know people, no matter their age, are always motivated from within. All behavior is purposeful, and that purpose is to get something we want so we can more effectively meet our needs of safety and security, connection, significance, freedom, and joy. Getting to the want under the behavior is more productive than simply punishing the behavior. Punishment can get you compliance, but that's the best you can hope for. The person will do what you want while you're looking to avoid your punishment, but they won't be doing it because they want to. Therefore, they're more likely to stop when the consequences aren't imminent. There's a distinction I'd like to make regarding consequences of the punishment variety. There are two types of consequences. One is imposed and the other is natural. There are also two types of imposed consequences. One is illogical and the other logical. Many people confuse logical consequences with natural consequences, but they are two different things. An illogical consequence has nothing to do with the offense. For example, let's say a person starts a fight in school, and as a consequence, they have to work with the custodian cleaning classrooms after school for a week. Cleaning classrooms has nothing to do with preventing fighting, so it's illogical. 
A logical consequence might be to assign the perpetrator and victim to the same project group so they would have to learn together and consequently might find something about each other that they can like and respect. The natural consequence of fighting is that the victim won't like you and many other students will stay away from you too for fear of becoming your next victim. When you choose to facilitate a student in self-evaluation process, you're helping them connect their behaviors to the natural consequences as well as the consequences that are imposed by others. You don't want to be the one to impose consequences or insist someone else like the dean do it because then you're no longer working with the student. You're punishing them. However, you are able to point out the consequences that will happen if they continue with the behavior without threatening them. You can be on their side, trying to help them avoid the negative consequences of their behavior. It's not enough to help students stop engaging in the problematic behavior. The behavior is their way of meeting an unmet need. The human system is designed to pay attention to unmet needs and develop effective behaviors to get those needs met. It's not designed, however, to develop responsible ways to get needs met. That's something people must learn. It's also important to note that just because you tell someone a better way doesn't mean they know it or will choose it. You need to convince them that trying the new, more responsible behavior will at least be as effective as the behavior they've been using or they'll continue with the old behavior. They have to actually think they'll get at least the same of what they want while avoiding some negative consequences, mainly natural consequences. Without that buy-in, expect the old behavior to continue. You may also see the behavior continue out of habit. Neurologists will tell you that neurons that fire together wire together. What this means is that our brain forms neural pathways that are connected, and the more often we use a particular behavior in response to a stimulus, the more entrenched that behavior becomes. Think habits. You may have every intention of doing things differently the next time, but without vigilant attention to your behavior in the moment, there will be a strong pull to engage in the behavior you've engaged in before. I'm sharing this so you know just because you've spent time talking things out with the student and they agree to a new plan doesn't mean that in the heat of the moment they'll be able to execute their plan. Taking that personally by becoming angry, frustrated, or dejected will not help the situation. You'll want to interact with the student with understanding and investigate what got in the way of using the new plan. With that new understanding, you can help the student make a new plan and take into account whatever prevented them engaging in new behavior to increase the possibility of success in the future. Don't lose patience. The student is worth the effort. Sometimes the fact that you have a positive relationship will be enough for the student to want to try a new behavior. When you've invested in the relationship and genuinely care about the person, they'll take the information you share with them more seriously. They'll hear you a little differently. They'll consider more what you're suggesting. It's never a waste of time to form a positive relationship with a student. You may be the only one in their lives who are making that effort, and everyone deserves to have someone in their corner. To recap, punishment doesn't work unless your only goal is compliance. It's best not to impose consequences. 
The effective way to create behavior change is through facilitating the person's self-evaluation so they can make the connection between the consequences they're experiencing and their behaviors, which will often create an internal desire to do something different so they can get what they want without the painful consequences. You're helping them turn their effective behaviors, meaning they work, into responsible ones, meaning they get what they need without preventing others from getting what they need. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and that you'll join me next week as we change topics from education to mental freedom. I'll be interviewing Christine Duffield, a teacher, choice theory trainer, and mental freedom graduate. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at www.therelationshipcenter.biz forward slash podcast and remember to subscribe.